There's a neat thing that I've observed these last 26 years we've ministered together here at Ogleville. This is a place where things that are discarded or broken or seem to have no value regularly find repurposing. Uh, they have a way of being uh, remodeled and renewed and made over. I, I, I could point to several things like that that have happened. Uh, some of you were here when we didn't have any classroom spaces in our basement, and we inherited junk from New Hope Christian Church. They were old partitions, broken, didn't work, had uh, water stains on the vinyl. And a group of people here uh, meticulously worked on those. They stripped off all the broken parts, all the broken material, all the old vinyl, repurposed that, recoded that, sent the metal off to get it powder-coated, and had pieces that were broken fixed. Something that was formerly trash became a treasure to us and a, a very important thing for a time as we had partitions for Sunday school classes downstairs. The old sanctuary here, built in 1887, had fallen into terrible disrepair. Some of you will know there was a time where that was so horrible back there that when, when people would come to visit, we would kind of lock that door to the back space because we didn't want visitors to see this mess that we had back there. It was an eyesore and an embarrassment. But as you know, Ogilvy Christian Church, God blessed us, and what was once something that we saw kind of as really having become a problem, an eyesore, we turned that and God transformed that into something we're really proud of, a beautiful space back there. It's, a, it's kind of a thing God's just done all along, and it's not just with, with material things, it's lives. It's lives. Marriages here that were, well, no one was going to bet on that one making it, let's just say that. Things were bad. But God worked, and we see now some couples that were once on the verge of divorce ministering together, leaders in the church, doing fantastic things. And that's just one example. There are other stories, people that had battled addiction that turn around and end up being teachers of others and leaders. It's a remarkable transformation. I love seeing that happen. I love it when God does it. That's why I get so excited about this space out here, this new space that we're talking about expanding and having Easter services outdoor. Part of it is it was just a trash heap. We discovered tons of broken glass out there. It was just a trash heap. There was so much garbage out there that when they brought in the bulldozer and loaded up that stuff into a, a, a container to haul it away, the container was so full of trash they couldn't haul it away. It was too heavy. And they had to bring an end loader in and bring the garbage out of it and get into another end loader to haul it out of there. And yet that space that, was, that, that we saw almost no value in at all, just a drainage ditch and a trash heap, as you're about to see, it's going to become a beautiful space. If the Lord will give me what I'm hoping for, we'll have our Easter service out there this year. It'll be incredible one church service on the grounds. I think it's going to be amazing. Trash into a treasure. It's just something God has done over and over and over. It's the nature of God. I think that when we think about how God works in things, one of the most beautiful things is that no matter how bad the mess is, it's not too messy for God to do something beautiful with it. I want you to catch and hold on to that. Because in today's Jesus story, the final one in our series, we're going to see a person whose life is a mess. But here's the thing about what God does. God wants to help get us out of a mess, right? He does. But if he does that for us, 
if he renews us, if he straightens up our situation, what are we going to do with that? What will we do for others with that? That's also a part of this story of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you might turn to the book of Matthew, the 18th chapter. We're going to be looking through that chapter together. It starts with Jesus having had a conversation, and he, he says this in verse 15 to his disciples. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over, but if they don't listen, then take one or two others along, settle the matter uh, by the testimony of two or three. When Peter hears this, this thing about faults and dealing with things people have, I wonder what Peter's thinking about. It's interesting that, that you talked about Peter this morning. I wonder what starts going through his mind in this chapter. We're not going to read all this, but if we went back earlier in the chapter, we'd see, we'd see that, that Peter already is thinking about someone who has a fault against him. It's already happened. Maybe it starts at the beginning of this chapter where the disciples are talking about who's the greatest. And that's something that happened from time to time. We know James and John were bad about talking about who is the greatest, and, and maybe it just annoyed Peter. I mean, it might be that he's just annoyed with them, and that that's part of what gets under kind of a burr in his saddle. Maybe there's more, because in the same chapter later on, Jesus is going to talk about people who were cruel to children and caused children to stumble. And maybe Peter's anxiety that we're going to hear about in a minute comes from the fact that maybe someone had done something to him. Maybe he had been wronged by someone as a child. The question kind of reaches its head because Jesus and Peter have this conversation in verse 21, that I find quite fascinating. It's a conversation where Peter kind of asks and answers his own question. Jesus has been talking about forgiveness. And in verse 21, we read these words from Peter, of chapter 18. Peter came to Jesus and he asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, the rabbis of that day said the answer was three. Three times. Three strikes and you're out rule. That if a person wrongs you, forgive them once, twice, three times, and then you're done. Jesus kind of reinforced that when he said, if your brother sins against you, go show them their fault. One. If that doesn't work, take someone else with you. Two. If that doesn't work, he'd go on to say, bring them before the church. Three. And then if they don't listen, treat them like a, a publican or a sinner or whatever. So Jesus kind of reinforced the three-strike rule. But Peter sensed, I think, that Jesus had more forgiveness in mind than just three chances. And so Peter asked the question, Lord, tell us how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? How many times? But then he answers his own question. And, and you got to picture this, Peter, right? He knows that the, the, the tradition says three, but he says, you know, because he's Peter and he's trying to do what God wants. And so he thinks, I'll double it. I'll go six. And then for good measure, I'll add one to give a holy number seven. So he says, seven times, Jesus, like, he's like asking and answering his own question. How many times? I'm thinking seven. Seven seems like the right number, Jesus. Now, I got to picture this, right? I don't know how the other apostles or disciples at that point responded to Peter's words here. I mean, maybe they roll their eyes like, oh, here we go again, trying to show off, you're the best, whatever. I don't know what's going on in the, in the, in the dialogue there. You know, when we relate, when we were with people every day, we get on each other's nerves sometimes. It's just a reality. I mean, come on, husbands and wives, you even know it's true. It's just part of how life works. Nobody gets along all the time. It's part of life. I see signs. What a nice husband. No, every day with you, honey, is perfect. I would never. Well, whatever the case may be, all right? 
Peter asks how many times I need to forgive, but Jesus blows his mind. Not seven times, he says in verse 22, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. So somewhere between 77 and 490 times you should forgive. And really, truly, right, Jesus isn't saying just forgive that number. He's saying a limitless number. Just keep forgiving. Now, Peter hears that, and I'm pretty sure, knowing Peter, he wants to say something. But before he can jump in and, and say something, Jesus tells a story. And having been in this series with us, you know that these Jesus stories, they, they have a way of, of having some plot twists in them and some surprising things happen in them. And this story does not disappoint. Indeed, this is a story that makes some powerful points about how God can take something broken and messy and fix it. And it makes some powerful points about what we do, if he's done something like for, that for us, what we should do for others. Well, listen to the story. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Some translations say 10,000 talents of gold. Now, to have an economy of scale, you need to understand what these bags or talents of gold represented to the hearers, to Peter and his friends when they heard it. Here's the first thing you might not know. There's some debate, but, but a talent, we think, represents 90 pounds. It's a measure of weight, as well as other things, but 90 pounds of something. It could be a talent of silver, it could be a talent of gold, if, and in this case, it's a talent of gold. So 90 pounds of gold is one talent. So if you have 10,000 talents you're owed, that's 900,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot. Suffice it to say that if you owe 900,000 pounds of gold, you owe a lot. To put that into the current vernacular of what uh, that would cost, that is roughly a number of $26 billion in the current currency. $26 billion debt. I mean, that's like national debt level, right? That's big. $26 billion. To Peter and his friends, that's an impossible number. They've never heard of a debt this big. They're probably wondering, how could you run up a debt this big? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have someone in your life who you think could. I don't know if I know anyone could spend that much money. That's a lot of money. But well, let's, to make it easy, let's, what's $6, million, $6 billion among friends? Let's just call it $20 billion for our purposes the rest of the day. $20 billion debt. It's a big debt. It's not a debt that you'd be able to work off quickly, that's for sure. Here's what it says about this debt. He comes to settle it. The man owes him all of this money. And since he was not able to pay, and who could? The debt is enormous. It's almost incalculable. It's hard to imagine such a severe debt. So the master, the the king says to him, he orders that he and his wife and his children and all that he has be sold to repay the debt. Now, in our world today, that seems exceptionally cruel. In the world of their day, people became indentured servants and were sold to slavery with regularity for debts. 
It was very common. The reality of this king is that in doing this, this man's life is on the current market of value of its day, not worth $20 billion. That's not what he's going to get in return for this. He's going to get almost none of his money back. I know that sounds harsh and cruel, but that's the world he lives in. He has a huge debt. He can't pay it. And it's not going to just affect him. It's going to affect his wife and his children. And by the way, as you know, debt does that anyway. It affects our whole family. A good plug for, play, a good plug for the Dave Ramsey moment here. But moving on. Talk about a mess. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. Talk about a hollow, empty promise. It can't be done. He cannot pay back the debt. It is not possible. The debt is too big. There's no way he can pay it back. But he begs, please, I'll pay you back. Please give me more time. I'll pay it all back. But the king, the servant's master, <laughs> took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. So if the first thing that blew the disciples' mind was the size of the debt, the second thing that probably blows their mind is, how could you forgive? How could you forgive that? This person was in debt to the king. It's the king's money he'd squandered. It was the king's resources he's used up, 20 billion worth. And the king just says, well, because you've repented, you've begged for mercy, I'm going to wipe your slate clean. That's incredible. You know, there's a, I've been reading this week through First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings in that section of the Bible. And as I was reading through there, the last chapter of First Kings has the most remarkable statement. First Kings has gone on this lengthy journey talking about King Ahab being a really bad guy, wicked, horrible, did horrible things. In fact, in the last chapter of First Kings, it says, he was the vilest man who had ever lived. That's saying something. There had never been a king as vile as him. And so God sends the prophet to tell him, you're, you're going to die. I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you. All these things are going to happen. And the craziest thing happens at the end of that chapter. This man who had just said is the vilest, most wicked king, did tons of horrible things. He repents. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He walks around humbly before the Lord. God goes to, a, to his prophet Elijah and says, have you seen what the king has done? Have you seen that he's walking humbly before me? And even though we can honestly say God is unchanging in his big truths and the things that happen and what he says will happen, the timing of that God has a lot of control over. And so even though he told Ahab, I'm going to do all these things to you, God says, because he's humbled himself, I won't do these things during his lifetime. I'm going to do them later on. He shows them the vilest man who's ever lived to that point. He shows him a kindness because he repents. That's what happens in this text. This man owes a huge debt. But the king says, what's he say? I have pity on you. Your debt is canceled. Go home to your family. I love that about Jesus stories. This is a story about the kingdom of heaven. This is what our king is like. But the story didn't end there. 
Because it's not just a story about the king's like, it's a story about what we're like. And I hope that we're not like this servant in the story, because most of you know where this story goes next. Verse 28 says, that servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, or a hundred silver coins. To put that debt in perspective, that debt is, if it's a, a denarii by its, just its metal value, is one-tenth of an ounce of silver. So by that measure, this is a debt that's worth about $216. But in their day, 100 denarii, a denarii represented a day's wage. So if we made that the measure we use here, a day's wage for 100 days, roughly in our economy about 12500 for the average U.S. worker. So a debt of 12500 most of you at some point in your life have had a debt of that much or probably much larger if you've bought a house. Much larger if you ever bought a new car. 12500 is a manageable debt for most of us. Many of you have paid that debt level off several times over. It's a debt that can be repaid. It's not a debt that's impossible to pay back. But listen to what happens in the story. Right? $20 billion, $12,500. That's the difference. The same man who was forgiven $20 billion. He goes out. He finds one of his servants who owes him 100 coins. And he grabs him. He begins to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. Sound familiar? He begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. And for sure, he could. For sure he would. But the man refused. Instead, he went off and had that man, he had that servant who owed $12,500, he had him thrown into prison because he couldn't pay his debt back on the spot. And he had to, somehow pay his debt back while he's in prison. How's that going to work? His wife and kids? When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. When we hear what happens, we're outraged. We're shocked. How could someone be so cold? How could someone be so cruel? How could someone be so unaware of the debt they were forgiven, yet they can't forgive someone so much smaller than that? How is that possible? In our economy, we, we like to think that people who are forgiven a lot will forgive a lot. But that's not what happens in this story. He's forgiven a lot, he forgives little, none. So the other servants see what happens, has happened, and they're outraged, and they go tell their master everything. They tell the king all that has happened. And they talk to him about how this person showed no mercy. He showed no compassion. He showed no forgiveness. He gave no more chances. So the master calls the servant back in when he hears about it. Verse 31. He says to him, you wicked servant. I canceled all of that $20 billion debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And now in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. And you've got to think about this for a moment. 
If he owes $20 billion, and he's going to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, that's a lot of torture. Now, here's the, the part. We, we like to see Jesus as the happy Jesus. We like to see Jesus as smiling Jesus, always kind and nice, you know, little kids sitting on his lap. And that is certainly a part of the story of Jesus. But this is a Jesus story. He's the one telling it. I didn't write it. He did. Listen to what he says next. Right? The unmerciful servant tortured for the rest of his days. And Jesus says this to the disciples, to Peter, who said, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? This story is his answer to Peter. It's his answer to us. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you, he says. Unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Whoa, Jesus, are you saying that we're like the unmerciful servant? That we have a propensity to receive a tremendous gift from you but not share it with others, to receive forgiveness for you but not to forgive others? Well, that's exactly what he says over and over and over. Jesus, in his whole ministry, has been consistent to say the way you forgive others is probably the way God's going to forgive you. And that should scare all of us. Remember what he said in Matthew 6, 12, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And Jesus didn't just tell us how we should forgive, he modeled it. We read those words in Luke 23.34 that when he was on the cross, as they were putting the nails in his flesh, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Wow. I don't know about you, but to me, that's just a really hard kind of forgiveness. <laughs> I'm not sure I can forgive like that. I want to. I want to be the person that's forgiving like that, but, but I know it's not easy to forgive people. We get irked by them, and we hold on to the irks. <laughs> we hold on to the things that bug us. And then because we're holding on to it, whenever they do anything else, whether it really is a crime against us or not, we, we fall back on the first one, oh, that no good so-and-so, and we get irked again, and we double down. And pretty soon we come to a place where we can't even forgive. I can't take another thing, not another offense. And Jesus wants to let go of that. He calls us to forgive. Because you see, forgiveness does far more for us than it does for someone else. Amen. There's a story, a true story, that occurred at a Christian church in Springfield, Illinois, about four hours away from here. It happened in the 1970s. Tom Dace was an elder in the church. He was beloved. He was like the favorite old Sunday school teacher. Tom was a great elder in the church. It is a Christian church, a church very much like Ogilville in terms of theology and what we believe, our core values and beliefs, our traditions. It's very much a church like that. And Tom was, he was a leader. He was also a contractor. And so Tom one day uh, had gotten a, a call to go do a a, a remodeling of an apartment uh, that needed it had water damage, had to rip out the drywall, you know, pull up the carpets, a lot of work to get this thing refurbished. And 
he had gone to this apartment one day to do his work as a contractor. Now, you can imagine a job like that's going to involve a lot of, of banging and pulling and, and ripping drywall off the walls and sawing out studs that maybe need to be replaced or, or fixing things. It's going to be a noisy proposition. But it was the middle of the day. He was hired to do a job, and he was doing his job. Well, while Tom was working upstairs, unbeknownst to him, there was a young man named Frank Sherry who had been on a three-day drug bender. And as he was kind of coming off of things, everything, every sound annoyed him. It, it was a horrible thing, and the banging downstairs was driving Frank Sherry crazy, literally. And he came downstairs out of his mind with anger and rage. He picked up the first thing he saw in the room, a hammer, and began to attack the man who was making the noise, Tom Dace. And he bludgeoned him to death. The church of Springfield was livid. What an injustice. They questioned, God, how could you let one of our best leaders be senselessly killed by a strung-out drug addict? To say that people wanted blood for blood, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth would be an understatement. They were mad. You'd be mad. I'd be mad. They were angry. The minister of that church is Bob Green, or was Bob Green. After the trial, Tom's wife, Florence, the widow, approached Bob, the minister, with an unusual thing. Frank Sherry had been sentenced to prison. He was imprisoned in Illinois for his crime. And Florence said to Bob, Bob, I think that God wants me to forgive Frank Sherry, the man who killed my husband. But I don't think he just wants me to forgive. I think he wants me to take him Tom's Bible. Now, Bob didn't know quite what to make of that, but he agreed to go with Florence Dace to the prison. And I am certain Frank Sherry did not expect to see the bride of the man he had killed, as his very first prison visitor. But that's what happened. When she got there, Florence Day said this to Frank Sherry. This is my husband Tom's Bible. It's filled with the notes that he wrote in the margins as he studied it. This book, the Bible, changed my husband's life forever. And Frank, this book holds the words that can change your life too. God wants to change your life. He wants to forgive you. I want to forgive you too. And she left. It was several months later that the chaplain of the prison called Bob Green, the minister of Southside Christian Church in Springfield, Illinois. and said, you're not going to believe this, Bob. Frank Sherry was baptized. He's become a Christian. 
Bob was excited to hear that. He called Florence Dace on the phone. Florence, he said, the man who killed your husband has come to Christ in large measure because of your forgiveness and your gift of a Bible. Now, for a lot of us, that's an incredible story. And if it ended there, that would be incredible enough. But because she heard he had become a Christian, Florence Dace at that moment said, she made a vow to herself and to the Lord that she would go and that she would teach Frank Sherry the Bible. And she would visit him every week to make sure he knew what God's word said and that he rightly divided it. And she became his instructor. And she would go every week to, to, to teach the Bible and to discuss theology and faith with a man who killed her husband. And you know what? After Frank Sherry had served his time for his crime and he was released, what do you think he did? He became, of course, a minister. A minister. I'm not there, but I wish I could have been the day that it happened when Bob Green invited Frank Sherry to preach to the people of the Southside Christian Church, the same people who once so hated that man. By all accounts, Frank preached a remarkable sermon. But the most incredible moment was an invitation where the church watched as Florence Dace walked to the front and she put her arms around that man who had taken her husband's life and they embraced as brother and sister in Christ. Talk about forgiving a big debt. I guess Florence didn't just hear Jesus' story. She decided she'd try to live it out. Can we? Can we forgive like Jesus? He wants us to. He asks us to. It strikes me that some of you here today who are Christians, you know what it is to have your debts and sins forgiven. You know what he's done for you. But there might be some here who haven't experienced that yet. If that's your story, if you're still carrying all the debt of sin, then I invite you today to come to the one who says, I forgive the debt. Go and sin no more. If you're ready to come to him, he says we should repent, confess him as our Lord and Savior, be faithful in Christian baptism, and walk in newness of life. If that's the decision you need to make, then make that. There are a few others here who there's a name. I told you I don't know who it was that Peter had in his mind when he thought about how many times I have to forgive them, but I suspect for some of you, you've had someone in mind today. Oh boy, preacher, why'd you have to go there? (laughs) Well, if that's the case, then spend this time of invitation. If you're already a Christian, spend it praying. Just praying for the person that's been so hard for you to forgive. Not because they deserve it. But this forgiveness thing, it's not really even for them. It's a thing that God does in you. Whatever decision you have to make, will you make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?